Stop chasing the money and start chasing the passion. This is Thrive Kings. Grind like today makes it or breaks it. Hustle like you never have before. And thrive on the fruits of your labor. Hustle, grind, thrive, repeat. This is Thrive Kings. Here's your host, Craig Fountain. Thanks for joining the Thrive Kings podcast. Today's guest went from small town high school dropout to lead designer at Groupon. A success story in itself, but like many with an entrepreneurial spirit, he wouldn't stop there. He chased his passion and started Kitsu, an anime social curation community with over 1 million users. Soon he'll be making noise in esports with Medify, a platform connecting gamers with coaches that represent the top 1% in their field. I hope you enjoy my talk with Josh Fabian. I know I sure did. You won't want to miss this episode. Follow the show online at Thrive Kings on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Josh, thank you so much for joining the show. I, I really appreciate it. I'm glad to have you on. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Before we get into your current project, Josh, I really want to get a good understanding of where you came from, where your journey started. You were a lead designer for Obaz, and from what I understand, Obaz was an e-commerce marketplace that gave online merchants and customers the ability to haggle. Can you give us an in-depth look at how you got involved with the project, the specifics of Obaz, and what were you able to accomplish there? Yeah, I'd love to. The way that I actually got started with Obaz was a little odd. I was in a weird place career-wise where I wasn't happy with what I was doing, which was working for a agency doing design. So what I ended up doing was dropping everything. I sold everything I had. I moved to Chicago with the intention to become a back-end developer. I was in a program called Starter League, which was the first like bootcamp accelerator thing for developers. They're very popular now, but at the time it was groundbreaking. And during that program, I had initially thought, I'm going to come out of this. And when I come out of this, I'm going to be incredible, right? I'll be able to, d- to develop anything. I'll be able to work as a developer, all of that. It wasn't actually the case. Uh, I did learn valuable things. But more important was the network I kind of put together through that process, like the people I got to know. And uh, among those people were the uh, founders at Obes. And they were looking for someone to take on design for their like fledgling startup that had just raised their first round. And I interviewed with them. That was kind of how it all kicked off. Uh, I didn't expect to get the job. It was my first step into startups. And I, and I specifically remember they asked me like in a coffee shop during the interview, what am I looking to make? You know, at the time I was making less than 50K and that was big for me because, you know, I dropped out of high school. So I don't have like a college degree and I didn't have these like career aspirations where I deserve to be paid X. Uh, for me, anything I was making was good enough uh, as long as I could like pay the bills. But I wanted more. I was hungry for more. So when they asked what I wanted, it was a hard question for me because I didn't know what I was worth. But I remember someone at Starter League saying that I need to figure out my plan for where I want to be financially by 30. Like, what's my what's my goal for age 30 in terms of money? Uh, and my goal at the time was I wanted to hit six figures. To me, that was like, that's when you've made it, especially for me growing up. If I hit six figures, I had made it. So that's what I told them. I said, I need at least six figures. I said it like I deserved it, but in my head I was panicking <laughs> because I knew I didn't. But what really floored me was they were like, yeah, we can do that. And they were completely unfazed. And at that point, like I was, it changed the whole path of my life, I think. But that, that was kind of how I started. In terms of like what we accomplished, we, we did incredible things there that I'm really proud of. You know, our marketplace had over a million users. And of like of those like million users, they were there to see 
uh, more than 5K small and medium brands selling products through our platform. So you mentioned working with the Starter League. Uh, what did your life look like before getting involved with Obaz? Yeah, so it was challenging, right? Because I didn't, I wanted to be a designer. I knew that. Uh, and I wanted to build products. I knew that. But I didn't actually know how to get there. I didn't have formal training in doing that. When I dropped out of high school, it was kind of just me trying to survive for a while. And I actually started out doing like websites for local businesses in my small town. And it was like $100 for a full website. And I was thrilled about it. <laughs> and now I, I've since moved on and, and I'm, I've grown a lot. But my process for getting there wasn't easy, right? It was a little bit every day. But when I was stuck, I had to go onto these forums and message boards and ask questions. And sometimes I'd just be insulted. Other times I would get an answer. The internet was still very wild west at the time. So for anyone that's like self-learning today, right? That wants to get into being a designer or entrepreneur or even developer, there is a trick, there is a secret. And that secret is consistency, right? Spend a little bit of time, even if it's only 30 minutes or an hour every day learning. And there's so many great resources to learn now. There's freecodecamp.com, probably the best resource, totally free. And there's also sites like Treehouse, Khan Academy. All of these are great resources that I didn't have when I was learning, but you could take advantage of now for that 30 minutes a day. And that'll get you there, right? I think the biggest thing to learn now that I didn't know then was the people building Facebook, the people building Google, they're normal people, right? You can be those people. You just have to put the work in. With Obaz, was this something new that you were bringing to the marketplace? What did the landscape look like at that time? Did you have any competition? Yeah, so we did have a competitor. They were called fab.com and they were taking a more straightforward approach to selling these kind of products, which were like boutique products, candles, things like that, uh, that were being made by people at home or other small businesses that were kind of like just getting off the ground, like indie projects essentially. But our approach was unique because we really gamified it. We kind of had a Tinder style approach to it where users would come to us and they'd like swipe right or swipe left to indicate if they liked a product or not. And then based on what they've swiped on, we'd show them different matches for products, getting into highly targeted placements for products that we know people are going to like based on their previous engagement with the product. As a lead designer at Obaz, what were your objectives or responsibilities? What did that role entail for you? Yeah, so for me, it was a terrifying period. It was my first role as a lead designer. Previously, you know, at the agency that I was working at prior to that, uh, and prior to the agency, I was just doing freelance work. So this was the first lead design position I had ever had. And I had a lot to figure out, but the CEO of Obaz was, super impactful in my growth. So he like set me up with a couple high profile designers in Chicago and he paid me my salary just to sit down with those people and learn. And it wasn't like learning, here's how you use Sketch or Photoshop. I was actually Photoshop at the time. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't like, here's how you use these design tools. It was more, here's how you think about design. Here's how we approach problems in design. And these are all things that they're very hard to teach traditionally. These are things that are being taught from experience. And that helped me significantly in figuring out what my job actually is uh, as a lead designer, because I wasn't sure if it was just, do I make things pretty or what? So, so right. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it was huge. And, and I learned quickly that like, as a lead designer, it, it was about numbers, right? So it was about at the end of the day, communicating with the team properly, adjusting my tone, depending on who I'm speaking to, right? If I'm speaking to a more junior designer, they need more constructive feedback. But if I'm speaking to a more senior designer, they need direct feedback. 
And, and the way you communicate that totally changes the whole atmosphere. So these are the kinds of things I learned from these like more senior designers. Uh, and they were kind of building blocks for me in terms of like the trajectory of my entire career path. Eventually, Obaz attracted a lot of attention from the media. And looking back, you can find a number of articles from Business Insider, Forbes, other major publications that have profiled the company. And it didn't just attract the attention of the media, it attracted the attention of Groupon, which ultimately acquired Obaz. When you were with Obaz, was this a surprise? Uh, it actually wasn't. Obaz was something we were immensely proud of. But at the same time, we knew that we weren't going to IPO. We knew that exiting wasn't very likely for us simply because uh, our competitors had much more funding than us and they were executing better than or as good as we were. So we weren't in a great spot and we were kind of just burning cash trying to keep up. What was good for us was that Eric Lefkowski, the co-founder of Groupon, was one of our investors. Our office was actually right in front of his office. Uh, like if I turned around while I was sitting in my chair, I could see him in his office working. So for him, it, it was this idea where he knew, he knew how much talent was on our team. And whenever Groupon was kind of in a weird place in terms of competing with Amazon, he wanted to bring in a team that knew marketplaces extremely well, knew how to grow them efficiently. That's kind of why he came to us, right? So it wasn't because Obaz was something they wanted to carry on. The intention was always Obaz will be shut down. And this is more of an aqua hire just to bring the team on and to bring them to inject them into Groupon to solve similar problems. So it wasn't very surprising. We kind of knew it was coming. It was talked about for quite a while leading up to the announcement, but it was a little scary. I can certainly see how that would be a scary experience. You know, even simple leadership changes foster that sort of uncertainty and stress and anxiety. What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my income? I can't really imagine what it would be like as far as to experience that through an acquisition. I would imagine that would only amplify it, at least in my mind. But moving from Obaz to Groupon, what went into retaining your role? Did they know you were the guy right away? Uh, no, I had to interview and that was <laughs> terrifying because again, like Obas was my first, like Obas was my first opportunity being with a startup, right? So to go to Groupon was such a huge transition because my mom knows about Groupon. My friends have seen commercials for Groupon, right? It was just much, a much bigger deal. So for me, it, it was nerve wracking for that reason. Uh, and the interviews were scary because I was being interviewed by, in a lot of cases, these people with Ivy League backgrounds and traditional design education. And I've kind of Frankenstein my experience together where everything I've learned, I've only learned out of necessity because I needed it at that time. Whereas these people, they've, they've taken this very deliberate path to where they are today. So there was kind of like this disconnect that scared me of, am I going to look like a total amateur? Because even though our end result looks the same, our process to get there is wildly different. I have to ask because I'm always fascinated with the culture of startups and tech companies. I always find myself clicking on articles about company culture, and I know I've seen Groupon in these articles. I've seen them featured in these articles. I, I have to know, when, when we read these articles, are they accurate portrayals of what it's really like to work for a company like Groupon? Yeah, I think they are pretty accurate. Like, the culture's great. There's like the personal, or not personal chefs, but there's like team chefs that provide lunches for the company for free. And they're like great lunches. There's like incredible benefits. And all of those I think are very true in that even though Groupon is this big corporation, in my opinion, they care more than a traditional corporation would. There's still this small startup up kind of atmosphere that makes them unique in the same way that it makes companies like Facebook unique uh, and Google unique. 
So what were your favorite and least favorite parts of the company culture at Groupon? Yeah, I mean, my favorite was certainly just being challenged, right? I've had this philosophy that I, I've taken from someone, I don't remember who, but it was just this idea that like in your day-to-day, if, you, if, you, if you're kind of lose track of your days, if there's this period where you're like, I don't even know what I did last week, it's time to move on, right? You're, like, you're, no, you're no longer learning at that point. You're no longer being challenged. And with Groupon, that didn't happen for a long time, right? I was being challenged often. I was learning from other people there that had more experience than me, both from like management side, design side, development side. There's tons of talent there, as well as like the culture of like giving back to the Chicago community where we'd have like talks where we would just teach people what we know. Those were amazing. What I didn't like was inevitably when a company gets to a certain size, things get political, right? Where there'll be times where we want to push a design out or we want to push changes live. But because this is going in front of 40 million something users, we need to go through a process, which can sometimes mean waiting days to push a very small change live. And that was just not fun. (laughs) As a lead designer for a company like Groupon, what were your responsibilities like there? And what were the specifics of the project that you were leading? Yeah. So my responsibilities were everything surrounding UI UX for Groupon stores, which is what it was called then. It's since been renamed to Goods Marketplace. That was our answer to Amazon. And my job was everything around the merchant and consumer side leading up to launch, at which point it would be handed off to a different internal team. So that was everything from onboarding for merchants all the way to consumer facing product pages where users would actually be buying things in the checkout flow, uh, all of that. So it was a pretty involved product. I would imagine that a role like lead designer at a tech company is a tricky spot to be in. Not only do you have to have all the technical knowledge necessary for you to do your job and to understand the project, but you also would have to have effective leadership qualities on top of that. What leadership qualities of yours most impacted the project? I think both in good and bad ways, it would be communication. It was my first time having a role of that kind of significance in a company that large. So I didn't really understand in the beginning just how important communication was. You know, at a company like Obaz, we were a small team of like six people. So if I didn't communicate something properly, it was okay. Someone would just ask me later. But with Groupon, where there's thousands of employees, it's not quite the same. You can't really just throw something under the rug and and come back to it later. And it took me a little while to learn that, to really understand that. So that was like probably my one of my biggest challenges. But once I got that down, it led to my biggest successes, right? And I think it's like this platitude, right? Like communication is so important, but it really truly is. Like learning how to communicate, uh, learning how to talk to somebody without upsetting them. This is a skill set you need to have if you want to succeed in startups because communication is everything there. So for me, like my biggest leadership quality was just refining the way I communicate. Uh, And that was from reading books, listening to podcasts, and just listening to people I respected in the company, talking to other people, how they communicated. But that got me through every hurdle and, and or that got me through every obstacle that we had in our way. I'm a big believer in the idea that leaders are readers. And I love reading. I read all the time. And actually, I should say listening as opposed to reading because I tend to lean towards audiobooks. My brain's just too busy for words on a page. I get distracted too easy. With that being said, though, it sounds like reading is something that's also something very important to you. With that in mind, what are some of your favorite books? 
Yeah. So my favorite book, I'll, I'll give you my two favorite books, actually. So my favorite book is called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And as a father, like that book matters greatly to me. And as a just competitive person, it matters greatly to me. And what that book goes into is just what it's like to be a world level performer, whether that's a world-class designer or a musician or athlete, it's all the same, right? The process to get there is all the same. And the book really delves into that. And it's fascinating. And for my second favorite book, it's The Score Will Settle Itself. And that's a book on leadership. And it's it kind of goes into just how to be an impactful leader without worrying about the end result. Those both sound like great reads. Now, are you more of a words on a page guy or do you lean towards audiobooks? It's definitely words on a page for me. I like highlighting. I, I do prefer ebooks, but for me, I really like the process of highlighting things that I want to come back to. And with audiobooks, I almost always fall asleep. Uh, so, so maybe it's technique. Like maybe I need to listen to them in a different time instead of like at night before bed when I usually read. For me, I kind of find when I go back to words on a page, I, I experience that phenomenon. Like when you're driving and you go through an intersection <laughs> and, you, and you get further down the road and you find yourself remembering, you know, did I stop at that stop sign back there? Like, you know, it's back there, but you know, my brain's just so busy that, if I read something that I identify with that has some place in my life, my mind just takes off with it. And where I end up is two or three pages deeper into the book with no recollection as far as to what I, w I was reading on the past few pages. You only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. This is Thrive Kings. Going back to Groupon, what were your most impactful successes and failures there? So I think my the most impactful success is launching the marketplace. You know, we took it from zero to 100 million plus global market value in three years. And that's something like, that's something that we're really proud of because one, we did it in a big company that doesn't move very quickly. And two, you know, we proved out something that nobody was sure was going to work just because of the brand sentiment that Groupon had. In terms of my biggest failure, yeah, I actually remember it pretty specifically. So <laughs> we had uh, this onboard boarding flow for merchants where they would upload their product catalog either manually or via a CSV. And our manual upload process was beautiful, right? It worked extremely well. It was intuitive and uh, aesthetically very pleasing. Our CSV upload, I wanted to try to like push the envelope on how that would be done. And I wanted to break down barriers and I don't know. I wanted to be like, when people talk about CSV uploading, I wanted to be the guy. Uh, <laughs> but the problem with that is I went too far with it to the point where it was strange, right? So like in design or like the laws of UX, right? You have this law called Jacob's law. And what that says is, you know, users spend most of their time on other sites. This means that they prefer your site to work the same way that the sites they already know do. And for me, I didn't, I ignored that entirely, right? I thought, it's not too big of an ask for users to learn how to do this process totally new uh, and break away from how uploads are done uh, for CSVs traditionally. And it was a nightmare. Users hated it. <laughs> And all that hate came squarely on my shoulders because I argued so hard for the change uh, in spite of feedback uh, to the contrary. So that was my biggest failure. And I really just had to take that on the chin. And I think that's like an important thing for people like when they do fail, don't try to make excuses. Like there's never going to be a person who's like, hey, thanks for giving me that excuse. I understand now. Like they, they, <laughs> they got you, right? 
I really appreciate you discussing failure with me, Josh. It's not something that everyone is comfortable or secure enough to talk about. And I think that dealing with failure is a skill everyone should have and try to improve on a daily basis. And I think the key to that seems to be mindset. And there's a lot of cliche sayings out there when it comes to dealing with failure. When I worked in corporate culture, I always heard that baseball players fail 60% of the time. I like to flip that around. I think it has more of an impact when you flip it around. Like, for example, Derek Jeter. His career batting average was 310. That means that this Hall of Fame baseball player, one of the best to ever play the game, was only successful 31% of the time when he stepped up to the plate. There's one thing I do want to add just for failures, because I think there's a right way to fail. And I feel like people, that's, that's the thing that people don't get the most is like how to fail. And I think the right way to fail is it's like a two-step process, right? The first step is quickly address that you failed, right? Uh, and sometimes swearing there is great, right? Guy Kawasaki's book, Enchanted, kind of goes into like, sometimes it's okay to swear. Sometimes it, it, it adds value and impact to what you're saying. The first step is to say, hey, I messed up or whatever it is, but don't make excuses. Don't go long and in depth about it. Just say, hey, I messed up. Step two, address how you're going to not mess up in the future. So say, hey, I messed up. Moving forward, this is what I'm going to do differently. And maybe that's moving forward. I'm going to take what you guys are saying at face value. I'm going to really consider it more. Or maybe it's I'm going to do more testing. Whatever it is, that two-step process will get you out of whatever hot water you're in almost always. There's two books I want to mention in addition to the one Josh just mentioned that are tremendous resources for handling failure. And the first is by a retired Navy SEAL by the name of Jocko Willink. And the book is called Extreme Ownership. And in the book, Jocko discusses events that took place in war where failures were a matter of life and death, including friendly fire. The second book I want to mention is called Never Split the Difference by Chris Foss. He was a leading hostage negotiator for the FBI. And just like in Jocko's instance, any mistake that that could be made was a matter of life and death. These are great books because even if mistakes we make personally don't have consequences as severe as life and death, there's definitely lessons we can learn from these guys that could very well be priceless to us. Josh, have you read either of these books? Yeah, so I read Never Split the Difference, and it's incredible. Uh, also, Chris Foss has a masterclass, which is equally as good. I'm not sure if you've seen that. I have not read the other book, but I actually just made a note of it, so I will read it. Extreme Ownership was a great read, and there's actually a book that's that's a follow-up to it as well. It's called The Dichotomy of Leadership. Jocko really built up a following from the book, and he has a wildly successful podcast, and he's, he's a successful business consultant on top of all that. I think he felt that people were taking the extreme ownership principles so seriously, he felt the need to follow it up with the dichotomy of leadership to show that there's still a balance to it. But nonetheless, great advice. Chris Foss and Jocko have both done TED Talks, and they are outstanding resources for anybody to learn from. So Josh, what ultimately led you to move on from Groupon? That's a good question. So it's actually a hard question because at the time, nobody understood why I was doing it. Because at Groupon, I had a pretty cushy gig. Uh, great benefits, in incredible employee culture, and fantastic pay. So when I moved on, it was controversial in my family at least. You know, because in my family, no one has gone to college, right? No one has this incredible career. They're, they're kind of just making ends meet uh, and they're focusing on family first. So for me, everyone looked at me and like, oh, Josh is doing great things, right, at Groupon. So when I made the decision, I'm going to quit and I'm going to try to do my own thing for cartoons. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it was controversial, but I, I genuinely believe that when you're an entrepreneur, you've got this 
this thing in your gut where no matter how much money you're making, no matter how much success you've achieved, you've got to kind of step away from it at some point and start over. You've got to build your thing, whatever that thing is. Uh, and then for me, it was just that, it was that thing in my gut where like I had to move on. I had to do my own thing or else I would just hate, I hate myself. I hate life. That's why I did it for me. So you're now the founder and CEO of Kitsu. I think a lot of people have an idea of what anime is. And, I, and you know, you were referencing cartoons. I know that I have somewhat of an understanding of what it is, but I wouldn't say I have a great understanding of it. But it does appear to be a huge community. What is anime and what is the community like? Yeah, so that's actually a super controversial question within the community. So traditionally, anime is any cartoon originating from Japan. But that line has blurred uh, in recent years because we have things like Avatar The Last Airbender on Nickelodeon. And it's not an anime in any way, but it, it borrows these anime elements. And then you have Castlevania on Netflix. Again, not made in Japan, but it looks like an anime. It feels like an anime. It sounds like an anime. So for us at Kitsu, we see anime more as a way of storytelling, right? An approach to storytelling, which isn't always true. It's a complicated thing. Sometimes there are anime that are just like American cartoons, but we've tried our best just to be open about it because at the end of the day, it's just about the passion you have for it, right? The actual definition doesn't matter that much because it's a personal thing. So tell me about Kitsu. Yeah. So it's a social curation platform where people come to our site and they say, here's what I've watched. Here's Here's what I've read. And it gives them a platform to talk about that, those things that they're watching and reading. It's kind of like Facebook meets IMDb. Does it curate content from users or are you curating content for the users? Yeah, users are curating their own content. So if you had an account on Kitsu, you'd be able to send a link to somebody and they'd be able to see everything you've ever watched and read. Uh, and they might use your list to watch something of their own based on that list. Or they might use it to give you recommendations on something you should watch that you haven't yet. So we mentioned that you moved on from Groupon to something you're more passionate about, which is, which is anime. How would you describe Kitsu's growth from idea to startup to its current state? Yeah, so Kitsu started out, when I left Groupon, I really wasn't sure what was next for me. I just knew something was next. And for a little while, that was gaming. I played Clash Royale, a mobile phone game, and I was top 20 in the world. And I had a YouTube following because of it and a Twitch following. And I, and I very seriously considered maybe this is my next step, right? A career as an entertainer. Around that same time, I had this idea for Kitsu, right? Like this idea that like, okay, if I throw up this landing page saying I'm going to give recommendations for anime and, and we'll see where it goes from there. So I put that up. I posted it on the subreddit for anime and overnight we got 12,000 signups. Overnight. So that was a... Yeah, wow. so it was a huge indicator, right? And that was kind of the start of it. One of those signups was actually a developer and he said, hey, I've been trying to build the same thing, but I'm not a designer. Maybe we can pair up. And that kind of solved it for me. Like I had my co-founder. So then we started working on it. And in our first year, we had 100,000 signups. And then we kind of stagnated for a little while. We hit that, the trough of sorrow, uh, if you sure. will, where things just want, weren't like growing. 
right? We were kind of just stuck in one place. And that didn't shift for, you know, like two years. We were kind of just stuck in that kind of area where our users were really evangelical about our product and they're really telling others about it. But the community was so small that it wasn't enough, right? It wasn't enough for explosive growth. And that ended up changing whenever we got our uh, round of funding. So we raised 600,000 for the platform, which isn't a ton, but it was enough for us to one, go full time on it. And two, start pushing in terms of like other angles of the, like differentiating from competitors. Uh, and that's what led to explosive growth. So we went from 100,000 to a million users in a two year period after that. Not to interrupt, but, but I, I'm curious, you said something and, and I was hoping you could uh, maybe talk more about it. What's What's the process of raising money for a venture such as yours? What what what's it like? What's it entail? So it's hard. Sure. <laughs> uh, that's it. It's just hard. No, so I mean the biggest thing is who you know, right? And that answer sucks, I know, but it's just a reality. And that's why the communication again is so important. So at every step in your career, you should be networking as much as possible because the more people you know, the more people who can bring down barriers for you. Uh, with Kitsu in particular, my experience with esports actually led to me meeting an investor in the Philippines uh, who loved what we were doing and he he wanted to be a part of it. He didn't know how. And um when we got to the point where we were really considering, okay, do we continue with this project or do we kill it off, right? Because again, we were in this period where nothing was happening for us. We got an, we got an acquisition offer from one of the big players in the anime space uh, where they just wanted to buy us outright and then they would hire us to then work on their product as their employees. And we were very seriously gonna take that. And when I took that to that investor in, in the Philippines and I said, hey, here's what we're considering. He was the one who said, you know what? Like maybe there's a way I can be an investor in this product. So that was kind of the first step for us. And then from there, it was going back to that company, the anime company that was interested in us, Viz Media, and saying, we don't want to sell anymore. We would love for you to fund us instead. Uh, and that was a long negotiation period, you know, almost three months of back and forth and bringing lawyers in and talking about the terms. And at the end, it was solved. But that first, that first funding round opened up so many other doors where my advisors were introducing me to new investors. And now we have all of these different investors who have seen the work we can do and they're interested in us. And, and it's not because, hey, we're incredible or hey, we're, we're unique among all entrepreneurs. It's just because they know us. So for anyone listening that wants to raise money, the biggest secret is just talk to people, get to know people, uh, go to accelerators and meetups and put out good work. And it's not always going to settle itself, but if you're doing good enough work consistently enough, uh, it often will. We've looked at what the growth was from concept to startup. What's the current state of Kitsu? Yeah, so Kitsu is um, still doing well. Again, we've, we've broken the million user milestone, which was huge for us. Like, we're very proud of that. And now we're kind of in a position where I'm not sure where, where we want to go with it exactly next, while I'm also starting up my next thing. Uh, so Kitsu is kind of uh, on the back burner for me because it's in a very stable place. And I'm working on the next thing that I'm very excited about, which is in the world of esports. Now, I want to get into your next project, but before we get into that, I'm curious as far as the challenges as an entrepreneur, you've overcome them, you've cultivated something from idea to startup to something that's been successful and an area that it, it sounds like you have a passion for. What do you like most about entrepreneurship? Have you always known you were to be an entrepreneur? 
I wouldn't say I always knew, uh, but I think I've always been this way. It's just I didn't know what this way was. So as a kid, you know, I had this, I didn't have this, ten, like I didn't have a lemonade stand, right. right? That never happened for me. But I was always pushing these like weird ideas out, right? Like my own games or whatever it was. And usually they failed. But I always had this thing where I wanted to put my own stuff into the world. So for me, like that's always been a thing, but I didn't know I was an entrepreneur until I was older and got to be around other entrepreneurs and finally felt at home. You know, growing up in a small, farm town I had no idea how different I actually was right I always felt just out of place but going to the city meeting other entrepreneurs I thought oh okay these are my people what do you like most about entrepreneurship is there anything you don't like do you have any regrets as an entrepreneur yeah I mean I think what I like most is that it fulfills me it makes me feel like what I'm doing in life has purpose you know there's nothing quite like putting a product out and then someone uses it and it dramatically leaves an impact on our life. You know what? Even if it isn't dramatic, even if it's a small impact on our life. With Kitsu, the whole community came together a few years ago and they set, they put together this like video of users like speaking for one to two minutes each of the impact of Kitsu on their life. And for a lot of these people, you know, they're, they have social anxiety, right? They're not going out and meeting people. And for Kitsu, it's their primary means of communicating with others. Uh, a lot of these people met their significant others through Kitsu. Some of them have gotten married already. To have built that, right? To have sat in my underwear for months on end and put together this amazing thing that changed people's lives, nothing quite matches that. So that's what I like most about being an entrepreneur is just the ability to impact others uh, at a wide scale. Uh, what I like least is certainly being an entrepreneur sucks. It's hard, right? Like you don't, <laughs> that idea of like, Sometimes I envy the people that they go to work at 9 a.m., they come home at 5 p.m., and work is done. And they spend their time with their family, and they're content and peaceful. With, with startups and with entrepreneurship, it's chaos. It's hard. Uh, and you have to struggle with this feeling of, am I failing? Am I going to let down all these people who are relying on me for their income? Those are all very stressful things that I don't think a normal person would be okay with living day to day. What advice do you wish someone had given you when you started? That's a good question. I think the biggest advice I could have gotten would have been around like really understanding money better. You know, and, I, and I, that's, that sounds silly, I know, but like when you have a startup, the lifeblood of your business is your money. When you're trying to raise money with investors, there, there's no investor on the planet that, that wants to invest in a company that needs them to survive. So if you're going to an investor and you're saying, hey, we want to raise money from you because if we don't, we're dead, that's not attractive, right? And if you don't understand money well, you're going to be in that position more often than not. So, and I didn't for a long time, I just didn't understand money again. like. I'm a high school dropout, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm generally not a smart guy. So whenever it comes to like, here, let's plan our finances. I always kind of just said, well, that'll figure itself out later. Let's just focus on product. So that's the biggest thing I'd say is like, starting that now, right? It's not fun. It's boring. It sucks. But it's so important that if you want to be a CEO, if you wanted to be a, a startup founder, you need to learn it, right? You don't have to master it, but you should have a good understanding of it. it aside from what you just mentioned, what would be the biggest advice you we give to someone contemplating entrepreneurship? Well, my first piece of advice would be don't. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, and if, if that advice doesn't mean anything to you, right? If, if somebody can say, someone you respect, someone has been through this, can say to you, hey, don't do this because it's going to affect every relationship you have. Um, it's going to consume every waking thought you have and you're probably going to fail. 
and then you still want to do it, then there's nothing I can say to you. Like you're already an entrepreneur, right? Cause that's what it takes to be an entrepreneur is the ability to look someone in the eye and say, I know I'm probably going to fail. I know this is going to be the most difficult thing I'll ever do, but I still need to do it. Um, and I think if, if you're that kind of person, then I I'd say just launch now, right? Do everything you can to get started. Uh, because that feeling is never going to leave you. You'll just be wrestling with it for years, or maybe you'll end up in a position where you're not so lucky to be able to do that anymore. And then you'll just regret it. So first advice, don't do it. Second advice, if that doesn't matter to you, do it as fast as possible. Get started. That's out. That's outstanding advice. So, so you must be a glutton for punishment because you have another project coming up. Tell, tell me about your, your upcoming project, the one you're working on right now. Yeah. Um, so right now uh, we're working on a project called Medify. And what we're doing with Medify is we're taking the top players in the world across every competitive game and we're bringing them on a platform so that people that want to get better can get one-on-one -on -one coaching from those players uh, at surprisingly affordable rates, like $20 an hour to work with the best player in the world in your game. So when do you have a launch date for this? Is it is it in its early stages? What can we look for as far as Medify uh, right now? Yeah, um, so we do have a landing page up at Medify.gg, and we're probably about one to two months outside of our soft launch. But we're still in the process of like really building out the platform and working very closely with these players and these coaches to understand uh, how we solve the problems that they have. Uh, because a lot of these platforms that like already exist for this, they don't really treat these coaches like entrepreneurs, right? But we kind of see them like in the same way that we would uh, anyone in the community that would be listening to this podcast would see a freelance designer or a freelance developer, right? Where you have your own business that you're trying to grow. And we want to try to make sure that the platform we're building is conducive to the growth of that business for you. So is Medify actively seeking players or gamers to join the platform pre-launch? Uh, yeah. So we're only accepting the top 1% of players onto the platform just to ensure that when you do hire a coach, you're getting one of the best players in the world, truly. Uh, as for people interested in getting better, uh, they could start signing up for the waitlist today. Uh, and those people could be anyone from like someone who wants to compete uh, or become a pro player down to a parent who just wants to keep up with their kids, right? Like there's no real limitation there. Now, where can listeners find you online or on social media? Yeah, um, so my portfolio will be relaunching soon at joshfabian.com. Uh, but I'm also on Twitter at Josh Fabian. Outstanding. All right, Josh. Well, we appreciate you coming on the show. That's a lot of great insight from Obaz, Groupon, Kitsu, and, and Medify, your most recent project. It was a pleasure having you on. We got to do it again sometime. This was an outstanding talk. I'm so happy we connected. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Thrive Kings. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher Radio to never miss an episode of the Thrive Kings podcast.